Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, Seattle voters head back to the polls in another election that could shape the future of the Seattle City Council. Plus, the new regional homeless authority ends the annual point-in-time count. We have some good news on the economy, and a small local city faces threats directed at its elected officials. But first, by a vote of 8-1, to one, the Seattle City Council has approved its budget for 2022. It includes a lot of money for the homeless and much more. Joining me now is Matt Markovich, and we're going to dive through some of these numbers. And first off, it looks like they're going to be spending some $15 million on the homeless issue themselves. But then they're spending a lot of money on the Regional Homeless Authority as well. What's going on here? That's right. Um, There's two big funders of the Regional Homelessness Authority, which is really not up and running. It should be up and running early next year. Um, This is supposed to take over all those contracts that the city of Seattle, as well as King County, have been administering to do all the support services for the homeless, the shelters, the outreach, everything you see on the street. So... The only two funders of that gigantic uh, new bureaucracy is the King King County and the city of Seattle. So so in the new budget that was just approved by the city council, they added $15.4 million for uh, money to give to the Homelessness Authority to administer some additional programs, which is going to pretty much amount to $150 million up to that much uh, next year. That's a big chunk of change that the city used to use on its own and decide what should be done. For example, the homelessness uh, outreach, the shelters, uh, the hotels, anything you've dealt with about uh, administering services to the homeless and just temporary housing was running about $200 million in 2021. So we're talking nearly $150 million of that kind of that same money going to the regional homeless authority and they will decide how that money should be spent. Still, the city of Seattle is going to hold on to several tens of millions of dollars in its own little like individual projects for the homelessness for homelessness uh, response. But the majority of that money is going to go to the homelessness authority. And so the city council approved additional 15.4 million in its new budget to possibly the uh, reach up to 150 million next year. And we've talked so much about the RHA or Regional Homeless Authority and this 100 plus million dollars that's going to it. Do we even know how they're going to spend it because so far the RHA hasn't done anything. So you're absolutely correct. Uh, it's kind of a big handover of almost the entire human services department of the city of Seattle, which for years has been administering all the homelessness projects in the city of Seattle. Pretty much that whole department is gone and it's becoming the regional homelessness authority. And you have a King County element in it as well. So now it's handling contracts for all the response throughout King County. And we're talking to the smaller cities as well, but those smaller 38 other cities in the county are not really participating with their checkbook in the Homelessness Authority. It's just King County and the city of Seattle. So they haven't started really taking over all those contracts and initiate some new projects yet because they're still forming. So have they even discussed where they might be spending the money? Yes. uh, Mark Jones, who is the CEO of the Regional Homelessness Authority, doesn't like tiny houses, doesn't like tiny villages. Whereas members of the council, um, even new incoming mayor Bruce Harrell likes tiny house villages. So right there, that simple 
philosophy about can you put people in tiny homes in tiny house villages as a temporary fix to get them off the street, which everyone thinks is a good idea, just getting people off the street. Uh, Mark Dones supports the idea of getting people off the street, but they are not in favor of these tiny house villages as the city likes them. So we're going to see a lot of back and forth, I would think, between the city and the regional homeless authority because they're handing over this money and they're already in one of their first policy decisions doing something that the city doesn't like. But then again, the city, the county, and to some extent, the the other cities in the county and some homeless people make up the governing board. So think of it as a board of directors for the regional homeless authority. And so they can set kind of a large scale policy push toward uh, encouraging the CEO to go a certain direction. Um, but now the CEO finally and the staff finally will have all this money to spend in 2022. It's going to be interesting whether or not how much independence the CEO and what's known as the implementation board of the RHA will have with their overseers being the politicians, three from the city of Seattle, three from King County, including the mayor and the King County executive, overseeing what the RJ does. So it's a work in progress. I'm not going to predict anything right now on how it's going to come out because it's brand new and we're just going to have to wait and see. And we'll talk more about the homeless crisis here in just a few moments with the point in time count apparently not happening this year. That's coming up in our next segment. But we want to stick with the budget, the Seattle City budget, for the moment because the other thing that it looks like the City Council did was back off of a plan to cut more than 100 cops from the Seattle Police Department. Well, it was, and that was a big controversy whether or not it was an actual cut. So you had interim police chief Adrian Diaz putting out a press release in the 11th hour saying, you know, the plan that the council is discussing right now would eliminate 100 officers from the department. Well, in a sense, that wasn't really true. Um, the money, what it is, it's kind of a how you cook the books. I mean, that's maybe a very derogatory term I should not use, but it's the way the city and the SBD fund the department and an officer. So it's about a prediction of how many officers they can have. Well, this council and the mayor's budget allowed for 125 brand new officers. And as you know, Jeff, we've been talking about the shortage of officers, according to the city, for quite a long time and the longer response times. And so there's been this push, like, we do not want to cut armed, uniformed officers because of public safety issues. So I think with the council, with that in mind, the council looked at that uh, 125 additional officers that were put in the budget, new ones to replace old ones. And uh, the way that the council was looking at it, they, the council felt, at least the chairman felt that there would be more officers leaving the department than what the department thought would actually leave. And I'm not going to go into the mishmash of numbers, but it's basically budgeting for officers that the department realistically, because the academy rules cannot hire in 2022. So you're going to have a surplus of money sitting there for officers that are we're gonna they can hire, but they won't be able to hire that many. So why not so use that do? money to like, you know, hire from other agencies? Well, they can they can use that money. Yes, they can do that too, but but they won't be able to hire. They're anticipating they won't be able to hire all 125 officers. So you have tens of millions of dollars that predictably will not be spent. So the council said, 
no, maybe we should put that money here and put that money there and put that money here. And it came to look like, well, you know what? Looks like they're cutting officers if they're taking some of that salary money that's planned for officer positions and move it elsewhere. So that was the interpretation by apparently by the chief and some people who are critical of the council that their council is cutting the funding for officers at SBD. When in a sense, it wasn't. So in the end, though, the council ended up funding and not cutting officer positions, end up funding the positions that were allocated and proposed by the mayor, which in a, just right there in this last couple of years of, of police scrutiny and last year or so of the George Floyd movement, for the council to fully fund, in a way, officer positions as they did, that shows that's a political sign there that they've heard the rhetoric. They've heard the message from people. They've, they've read the editorials. They've seen the news. And maybe without having, I haven't talked to any of them directly, maybe that they're finally thinking, you know what, this fully, this, this cutting the funding in half of the police department uh, is just not a real political reality, except uh, council member Shama Sawant is the only one that always thinks that it will happen. And she's always been maintained. She wants to go for that. And to her credit, she's stuck with it. And that's one of the reasons why she voted no against this budget. But I can't imagine, even if they decided to cut, that that would actually fly because the city's still under a federal consent decree with the Justice Department. Right. Yes. You have Judge Robart for the last 10 years or so now is sitting over in the corner watching how SBD handles uh, its transformation that was that he's been overseeing and you had the court appointed monitor his basically personal liaison who's watching what's in city council's doing he basically wrote a letter to the council and the mayor saying hey i have some concerns here that you guys should be aware of if you cut these kind of data analyst positions over here that the court may have to intervene so he sent a little warning sign to the council he didn't tell him what to do or the mayor Still a warning sign, yeah, you may want to reconsider this. Well, the council didn't, I won't say they listened to that letter, but they did not cut the positions that he was concerned about. So those positions will exist. So he, you know, the council, again, looking over its shoulder, rather than going headstrong going forward as it's known to do, looking back over its shoulder, thinking, oh, you know, maybe I should consider what the, uh, the court-appointed monitor is saying, because he's basically... Not necessarily the mouthpiece person, the judge, but he's a little like the canary in the coal mine. You may want to watch out for this because Judge Robart may say no. And in this weird world that we've been living here in Seattle, unlike most cities in America, we have a judge that kind of oversees things about SBD. And his say, his word is it, it flies. So is the city council kind of coming back to earth, so to speak, because it, it seems like they're backing off a lot of their, as you say, the rhetoric of cutting police by 50 percent. There was talk of, you know, them then cutting, you know, what, 200 officers at one point. They seem to be backing off all of this virtue signaling that they've done over the last two years. They have. <clears throat> and I think maybe they're seeing they're being taking more of a realistic approach that you just simply can't cut SBD by 50 percent without an alternative in place. And they're, they're, they funded alternatives. They're funding crisis response. They're, they're funding diversion programs that prevent people who are low-level offenders from going to jail. 
that's part of the budget. So there's all their alternatives that they're actually funding now that it takes a while to get ramp up. So the city council taking that draconian uh, measure to cut the budget by 50%, it's just not realistic. They're finally figuring that out. But at the same time, they are doing taking methods to change policing, have a community response, a behavioral response, and go after the root causes of why people may be committing crimes. That just You can't just do that overnight. All right, we have to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll talk more with Matt Markovich about the point-in-time count. It's not going to happen this year. That's on the way when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel, joined once again by Matt Markovich. And we've been talking about the Seattle City Council's new budgets and how much they're spending on the homeless crisis. But one of the big measures that the city and the county in particular uses to measure the crisis, the point-in-time count, isn't happening this year. Matt, why is that? Well, I think they're finally coming to the reality that how they do it is flawed. Uh, The methodology, I've been covering this story for decades now and on these overnight counts they used to be called um, the how it's done and i'm not a statistician but people basically say are putting in the question can is it a realistic count to go out for a couple hours early one morning and kind of use that number uh, a guesstimate on how many people are in shelter in king county or the city of seattle now you, they, they take different things into consideration the last account was overall both sheltered and unsheltered, but considered homeless was 12,000 in, in King County. I'm just being very rough with the numbers. 8,000 in the city of Seattle and 4,000 were actually unsheltered in the city of Seattle. It means they're out on the street living in an RV or a car or anything like that. And so that count became important both realistically for funding from the feds through, because it was the Department of Urban Development that actually requires these every city to do these things in order to get fe- uh, federal funding. But it's also used as a political sign whether the homeless policies for the city of Seattle and King County are working or not. You can say if the numbers go up, the count the policies aren't working. If the numbers go down on that night, maybe the policies are working. But it's such an inexact science I mean, I was talking to one of the developers of the methodology. Actually, they actually changed it uh, four years, three years ago. And I said, well, how do you count somebody like in a car or an RV? And you can't, and this is actually, that was right when COVID was beginning. You can't come up to people and ask them, are you homeless? That that's just not how it's done. So they'll see a car, let's say it's 3 a.m. Because that's when they go out and count everybody. And the windows are foggy. But you notice that one of the windows, like on the passenger side, it's cracked open so it can get some fresh air. They could be a block away and they see this car. They would mark that down as someone living in that car, whether it's one or two people. The same with the tent. They saw a tent. They can't go in there and say, hey, is anybody in there? They can't say that. But they see a tent and it looks like it, you know, it's, it's erect. There could be two people in it. So they mark down two people. That's horribly actually, inaccurate. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a just huge guess, and it's all done by volunteers. And you know, I'm like I said, I'm not a statistician, but I finally thought, that, well, you know, they maybe they're realizing the inaccuracy and, and how important this number is. And this year, they're not doing it. So, the decision to make it uh, to to decide not to do it was actually the regional homeless uh, homelessness authority, who is t- is taking over the point in time count. 
that and it usually happens <clears throat> like the, uh, January 29th. That's usually been the date. I always think of it. I always remember it because it's always a week before the Super Bowl. So is this the first big decision that the RHA has made is to eliminate this point in time count? I, don't, I wouldn't call it a big decision, but it's a significant sign as to why that, that they've decided not to do this. And they're just kind of putting off on it um, because think about it. This is a time when it's the worst weather in Seattle, end of January, people are going to have, it's tough to find volunteers. People don't want to be outside. So then maybe they're in shelters or they're couch surfing, whereas on a warm day, they're back in their tent. So it's really hard to estimate that this one night count. And so this year they decided not to do it. We'll see what happens. So the the elimination, you know, of this count in the the inaccuracies of it aside, how are they then measuring the homeless crisis in King County? You have this new regional authority that's that's taking over really this, this as you said, this this whole department of the city and department of the county for human services. How then do they measure their success if they're eliminating this census of the homeless population? Well, I think part of the reason the reason why the RHA was created because you had different entities doing their own homeless outreach, and I think now that you have one agency that's kind of basically contracting all the homeless outreach through the entire county, so you have people actually going out into the field dealing with people who are homeless, also people who may be couch surfing, those people you'd never see, but are asking for funding or you need, need some behavioral support because they are homeless and they're on a queue to get Section 8 housing. The Re- Regional Homeless Authority should have a better idea of actually how many people are out there. They'll have a great idea of how many people, obviously, who are asking for services because it's now one agency that's kind of overseeing all the services for the homelessness uh, population. The RHA could provide a better a number as it goes forward and starts overseeing everything rather than just this one night count that was done. And then, then, you know, for years they did this count and then you had King County responding to the count on what, how it should fix the problem. You have the city of Seattle responding to this number and the individual cities. So now there's a coordinated effort for homelessness response and they should have a better. you know, I mean, I'm saying that should, they should have a better indication and an idea of who they're dealing with in all areas of the county, including all the other cities, and now be a more accurate representation of who actually is homeless. Do we know what form that will take? Do not. They may have already started this, but I'm not familiar at this moment with a method of how they're doing it. But just through their contacts with the homeless population in the county, which is going to be coordinated now, but more supposedly better than ever, uh, they should have a good indication. Whether they make that kind of number public, uh, that's not yet to be seen. Well, because if you look at it from a purely political standpoint, you have the point-in-time count, which, as inaccurate as it is, gives you sort of hard data, a hard number to measure against the success or failure of, of your policies. You eliminate that, then the public's just going to go by what they see, and what they see is homeless encampment after homeless encampment after homeless encampment, that's not getting cleaned up. So there's really nothing for then the regional homeless authority, the city or the county to point to, to say we're having success. We have to clarify what the regional homelessness authority is all about. It's about getting people services and into housing. It's not about cleanups. They're, they're not the authority that's going to say, Hey, this camp has to go. 
every regional government, like the city of Seattle, the cities, uh, King County elected leaders, which oversee the unincorporated areas of King County, they're the ones who have to decide the policy about encampments, you know, whether they can stay and go or they're a public safety issue. That's not the regional homelessness authority's job. They're not the ones who can say this camp has to be cleared. That's not what they do. So people drive down the street and say, hey, we're spending all this money on homelessness authority. And I still see these tents and encampments. What are they doing? Well, they're trying to get the people out of those tents and encampments. But it's up to the cities to decide whether those encampments stay. All right, we have to take a quick break. But when we come back, Matt, you'll stick around and we'll talk about an election. We just had one. But another one's coming up in a week and a half. Details when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela, joined once again by Matt Markovich. And we just had an election for the Seattle City Council. At least one new member is coming in uh, to the council starting on the 1st of January. We're also going to have a new mayor, a new city attorney as well. But we also have yet another election just a week and a half away. And that is the recall election of Shama Sawant, the Socialist City Council member from District 3 up on Capitol Hill. And we'd figure we'd check in with Matt and see where things are right now, because this is becoming one of the most expensive races in Seattle history. And it's a recall election. So it's a yes and no on whether someone's doing their job or whether you believe people want to try to recall or whether she violated the laws as alleged in the, uh, the ballot, you know, basically the whole idea here, or whether she... Uh, as her supporters say, uh, she's just being targeted for her views, and it's the corporate politicians that are in the corporate interests in the city of Seattle who just want her out. So have we seen any poll numbers or any other way to measure how well the recall effort is going or how well her defense against it is going? I have not seen any poll numbers. That doesn't mean that there there isn't a poll out there. Maybe the people who are doing the poll have not made those numbers public, but I have not seen any public numbers about where District 3 voters are leaning. And again, this is just District 3 in the city of Seattle, which is basically the Capitol Hill area, to oversimplify it, where she's real strong. She has strong support. And now her campaign ground strategy, if you want to say use the word legendary, is very well known in the city of Seattle. She has a good support system. She has loyal uh, supporters and followers, and they have proven that they could turn out a vote late in an election. And you're talking about the money, where the money's being spent. I mean, right now, as of November 19th, that's the last numbers we have, the recall campaign has raised $749,000, but the Shama Salat Solidarity campaign has raised more, $866,000. Again, you may not see any TV ads, you may not get any flyers uh, if you're in the city of Seattle, except in District 3 in the Capitol Hill area. Uh, that's where the hardcore ground game is taking place. And it's in a s- small little district, which she has proven time again, this is her third term, uh, that she can get the vote out, especially at the end of the last couple of days of a mail-in election ballot. There's nothing to say that she can't do that again here. Well, and I think this is also an important point to make. It's only District 3 voters that will be voting in the recall election. This isn't a citywide recall. It is only within her district. And the, the amount of money that's being spent and concentrated in that small area, as you say, is phenomenal. Yes. I mean, we're talking 
you know, $1.5 million. You know, people, if you look at some of the more the money is coming from, some of the money supporting her is coming from outside of the district. This is not all district three voters that are funding both the pro and the, the pro recall campaign and her support campaign. A lot of money coming from outside the district, a lot. So there's an influential reason why people want her out as well as in. And you can point to, and I don't have the, the contributor list right in front of me, but you could probably guess who's going to support which side. And so people are looking at that as just, okay, is, is the left of very left of center Seattle city council, could it swing eventually if there's, if she gets recalled and there a more moderate person is put into place in her place that would represent Capitol Hill. Would you agree with me, Jeff, that Capitol Hill is probably the most liberal neighborhood in the city of Seattle? Oh, I'd say on the West Coast. Yeah. I mean, so if it swings away from a a socialist candidate because she's recalled, that's going to be interesting. I think it's going to be very interesting. I I would not predict she's going to lose or get recalled or not in this. It's just she's proven that to proven people wrong in late in elections. And just as a matter of, of recalling the three things that she's accused of in, in, in the charges that the court supported against her for a recall election were misusing city funds for electioneering purposes, disregarding regulations related to COVID and allowing people in the city hall when it was closed to the public, mm-hmm. and then misusing her official position by leading a protest march to Mayor Durkin's private residence, and that private residence is protected under confidentiality laws because Jenny Durkin used to be a federal prosecutor. So those are the three charges against her. But you talk about that ground game for Shama Sawant. So you look back at the 2019 election, the last time Shama Sawant was on the ballot. Egan Orion was the challenger. He's definitely a liberal. He's not a socialist quite like Shama Sawant is. But on election night, he had a significant lead. But as those ballots came in over the next couple of days, the ones that were dropped in drop boxes on Election Day that were then counted a few days later, that lead evaporated and Sawant held office. That's right. After five days, she's picked up 12 percentage points and one by four. And that's all based on those late arriving ballots, because, you know, when ballots are counted in the mail-in election, the early ones get counted first. And then the later ones that come streaming in get counted last. It's very simple. And you, we all know that those latter ballots that came in were pro-Salon. And look what happened. And she did that in a previous election, too. So here it is. She's basically up for a fourth time now. You know, she's been elected three times to council. This is a fourth special election recall. There's nothing in in my political playbook that says that that won't happen again. It's, you know, if it comes out after election night and she's down 10 points, maybe, let's just say that. Again, this is not a citywide election where that would be really hard to make up. This is a district, just her, her Capitol Hill district. And she could probably make up 10 points after that first night if she does what she's been doing and her score has been doing for the last several go-arounds. And if she survives the recall... Boy, you can imagine the political capital she's going to have and, and what she's going to do with it. That's true, but I think it's just in her district. I think we, we, we talk about the budget, and it turns out the city council basically supported Mayor Durkin's proposal for the Seattle Police Department. Well, that was unheard of a year ago, and Shama Sawant was the leader of the 50% to fund movement on the council, and she's still staying with that mantra. But now you have more, if I dare say it, and you and I have talked about it before, a a more moderate council 
her political power, even though she would win in her recall, I, I have no doubt she'll still be the same council member we've known for years now. She's, I mean, give her credit for that. You know where she stands on pretty much everything. But whether or not that that influence on the entire council uh, uh, has more you know more power to it, I don't know. I think with the election of Sarah Nelson, obviously a more moderate candidate. Uh, so you have more three, if you want to call them more moderate candidates now, rather than um, one as in two years ago. So her political pull may be not as strong in Seattle, maybe on a broader, I'll call it an AOC level. Yes, she's more notable in a broader sense as a socialist candidate throughout the country. So what happens if she is recalled? Then what? Well, we'll see if she's recalled. I don't recall a date on when her council term would end. But there would be an interim council member selected, and then there will be a special election in the early part in the spring of 2022. And it'll be just a special election. It wouldn't be a primary. And then when her term's up, that person who won that election would then have to seek re-election in two years, uh, just like a normal cycle for her for her district seat. So it should be interesting to see what happens in the next week and a half. Matt Markovich, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome, John. All right, we have to take a quick break. We'll have more of the Como Politicast coming up next. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. The number of Americans applying for unemployment benefits plummeted this past week to the lowest level in more than half a century. Another sign the U.S. job market is rebounding rapidly from last year's coronavirus recession. Joining us now is ABC's Elizabeth Schulze from Washington, D.C. And I know I don't pay that close attention to all the economic numbers that come out every week, but this seemed to be a bit of a shock. This was. This was a lot bigger drop than economists had expected. We've now seen weekly unemployment claims at the lowest level since 1969. And this is, of course, coming after they had reached historic highs just over a year and a half ago at the peak of the pandemic. So we're really seeing improvement in the labor market here. This is a sign that a lot of employers don't want to let their workers go. They don't want to lay off workers because they're worried they might not be able to find others. We do still have this labor shortage in the country with a record number of people quitting their jobs. So ultimately, this shows that the labor market is getting tighter. It is recovering. And that's good news for Americans who are looking to also get pay raises and have more negotiating power to have uh, wage gains going forward, too. But this seems to be a, a bit of a contradiction. It's a really weird time in the economy where you have this high number of job openings, but also a lot of unemployment still. I mean, we haven't recovered back to the point of the jobs, a jobless market where we were before the pandemic. A lot of factors at play here, you know, some of what economists say is that is working in, in, in this in the dynamic is that people are still worried to go back to work because they have COVID concerns or they have ongoing childcare concerns. You know, we are still seeing daycare shut down and go back off and on. And, and that means people might not be able to have stable work. And we have seen a lot of women drop out of the labor force, citing that as a key reason. So that's still at play. Plus, you just have this kind of reassessment. It's being called the great resignation. Workers saying, I maybe don't want to go back to the job that I was doing before the pandemic because I didn't like that job. I have the flexibility now. There are a lot more openings out there. Maybe I want something that's a little bit more stable or maybe a little bit better hours. 
and that's that they have the option to do that. And that's sort of what we're seeing is this this shift go on right now. And it's going to take a little bit of time to work out. But generally, the expectation is that the unemployment rate will continue to tick down as people find those jobs over the coming months. And another bit of data, it also looks like consumer spending rose about 1.3%, according to the U.S. Commerce Department. How much of that is inflation, though? Yeah, so part of it is inflation. And it's certainly the higher prices have an effect on spending and retail sales data. But even when you strip out the higher costs and higher prices, this data shows that shoppers are still out there spending their money, that they are willing to absorb some of the prices and the price hikes that we've seen in recent months. You know, basically, a lot of shoppers started their their holiday shopping early. They're anticipating shipping delays or low inventory. We've also seen a pickup in spending on things like travel or Medicare, medical care, which had been a little bit more muted in previous months because of COVID concerns. So generally, this is positive news that the consumer is resilient in the face of higher prices, even though consumers are saying they're worried about inflation and they say that sentiment is very low. They're still out spending their money and they're willing to pay those higher prices for now. And that's really important because consumer spending makes up more than two thirds of the entire economic growth. On the political end of things, Republicans have been trying to paint the rising cost of goods and inflation on President Biden. What's the White House reaction to these numbers? The White House knows that this is a big issue for them, that they are the president himself is being blamed for these higher costs, specifically on things like gas prices, which affect so many people, especially during this holiday time. So the White House is touting the lower jobless numbers. They say that's good news. They are touting the fact that consumer spending is still continuing to go up. But they're also trying to make moves to do something about prices. You know, we saw this big announcement from the White House to try to tap into the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to basically boost the supply of oil to lower gas prices. And and we could see some gas prices come down in the next couple of weeks because the oil market has sort of priced in that announcement. But ultimately, to really lower prices for things like gasoline, there would need to be a longer-term fix that's a little bit out of the Biden administration's control. It would require bigger oil production globally. So far, that's not what we're seeing. And a lot of these issues the administration is frustrated about because they say this is just the economy working itself out from this huge disruption from the pandemic. All right, Elizabeth Schulze from Washington, D.C. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for having me. Still to come. A local mayor pleads for peace. I'm Brian Calvert with the threats that spawned a sobering message during a regular council session. When the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogula. The mayor of a small local city tells his constituents... We're trying to do the best we can. As Como's Brian Calvert reports, the comments came as the result of a series of threats. Most of us have avoided running for public office saying, that's a headache I don't need. These days, it's much more serious than just a headache. Mayor Andy Ryder commandeered the Lacey City Council meeting to plead for patience after revealing every single member of the council had received a threat. It's real easy sometimes, you know, especially when social media where you where you don't have to look someone in the face um to to immediately go to violence to immediately said this person should be dead right this elected official should die Ryder told the olympian later that when he attended the national league of cities conference recently he learned 80 percent of the attendees had received violent threats i was just uh looking at some comments in the olympian and there was people saying that all the elected officials in, in Thurston County should be, should be killed. If you've ever wondered why there's a shortage of good candidates running for public office, you now have an answer. I, I, we're better than this as a community. We're better than this as a society. And I know um, that most elected officials are, are, are sincere 
and are, are doing their best. They're not doing this out of some malicious intent of anything. They're just, we're just trying to do the best we can. The mayor's point seems to be they may not always be right or do what you had hoped for, but they were elected, and they're serving the community in a way you elected not to. I know it's it's been a tough year, and it's been a, you know, with COVID and everything else, it's been very tough. Um, but I know everyone on this council is trying to do everything that we can to make it the best place we can for, you know, for our residents and our businesses and our community. Brian Calvert, Como News. And finally, laundromats and game arcades are begging you to stop hoarding quarters. Como's Kerwin Hake reports a shortage of this most used coin is crippling the vending industry. Laundromat owner Heidi Thorson tells the Seattle Times not only is she having trouble keeping her change machine stocked with quarters, she has to constantly look out for raiders from nearby businesses who are also short on quarters. They come in and deplete her change maker. Dave Ryder is director of the U.S. Mint. This is not a coin supply problem. It's a circulation problem. He says we're minting plenty of fresh quarters, but the pandemic has so sharply curtailed cash transactions, many of those coins are stranded at home in cookie jars or sofa cushions. You can help get coins moving by using exact change when making purchases. Some are urging you to think of the quarter shortage as a social equity issue. A representative of the laundromat industry tells the Times the customer base of coin-operated laundries is more likely to be unbanked or underbanked than in just about any other business. Corwin Hake, Como News. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts or just tell someone. It really helps other people discover the program. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows such as Como News This Week and Life Beat with Marina Rockinger. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogela. Thank you for listening and have a good week.